electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you very much, Scott. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead on the exchange today, stocks are rising as bond yields reverse lower. But wait, we're asking, do rates actually matter to the stock market? One of our guests says yes, and that yields need to stop rising to trigger a new bull market. But Michael Santoli says it doesn't quite work like that, and he's here to make his case. Meanwhile, why have markets and the economy held up so well in spite of these massive hikes? David Zervos at Jefferies has a theory, and here's a hint, it equals to about 40% of GDP. But first, where did the huge morning rally go? Take a look at these markets. The Dow was only up double digits a moment ago, 128 points, healthier half percent for the S&P, and the Nasdaq, of course, is the leader today. It's up almost 1%. The two-year earlier touched its highest level since July 2007 before backing off. You just heard Weiss giving it another vote of confidence. You can see it up there just under 480. The 10-year for its part, about 3 the six-month, the one-year, those yields still above 5% if we quickly check on the very short end. Here you can see this. If there's, if there's anything people are talking about these days, it's not Bitcoin. It's have you heard about Treasury Direct. So have we been seeing the start of a new bull market or not? Let's ask Brian Weinstein of Morgan Stanley Investment Management and Andres Garcia Amaya. He is the CEO of Zoe Financial. Welcome to both of you. Andres, do we need yields to stop rising here? Uh, what, what gives? I think that the message has been clear from the Fed for a little while now, which is they're not going to cut interest rates. They're probably going to raise interest rates a little bit more. And I think the disconnect was that the stock market thought that they were kidding, right? Kind of like wink, wink. At some point, you will lower. And I think what we saw last week is the realization that they're not going to lower interest rates. And without, I don't necessarily think it's like, hey, rates have to uh, go down for the market to recover. But it is part of the ingredient to see a new bull market for the Fed to stop hiking interest rates. You agree with that, Brian? Um, listen, I think I think we have to have interest rates and, and equities decouple for there to be a, a meaningful rally in one or the other. I don't think we're going to get a rally in both. In other words, if growth falls and the Fed's done too much, interest rates will rally, stocks will actually sell off. So I think I'm looking for some decoupling here. The Fed's almost done. They've told us that. Um, we need to know if that's right, if they've done too little or too much. One more second on that decoupling, Brian. I just want to make sure I follow. What do you mean by that? Well, again, I think if you look at the last year, we've had interest rates go higher um, at the same time. As, the, as interest rates have moved higher, equities have started to wobble. In other words, when rates rally, you see the Nasdaq go up a lot, right? Rates fall. So I think what has to happen here is look at the last couple of weeks, right? Tenure notes went back towards 4%, and the equity market corrected off of its recent high. Exactly. So I think, what you, so I think that, that correlation, as long as we're moving in kind of unison, I, I think we haven't decided yet whether the Fed's done too little or too much. Hmm. But you, Andres, a quick word on that before I move on. Do you agree that we haven't just made up our minds yet? Look, inflation data in January showed that is not going to be a straight line to 2 or 3%. And I think people were optimistic about that, right? The stock market was a little bit optimistic as that being the base case. If that's not going to happen anytime soon, it's hard to see the Fed all of a sudden lower interest rates. That's the attachment between interest rates, inflation, and the stock market. And I just don't see it yet for the stock market having the driver to go all-time highs in this type of environment. Not only that, Andres, you think on tech 
specifically, you know, we had Kathy Wood on this morning uh, talking about some of the rallies they've just had in those techie stocks. You're looking at this totally the opposite. You think there's more room to fall in that whole area. Is that right? Yeah, look, you need new leadership, right, for a new bull market to to arise. And, and if you look at the market cap composition of these techie sectors, right, tech, consumer services, uh, they are still much higher than the representation of the earning share of the S&P 500. Until you see that gap close, it's hard to get excited about, about the broad market. Sure. But so how much further do you think tech needs to drop then from here? Well, look. It's, there's two sides of the equation, right? One is the earning side. The other one is the market cap side. Valuations still look uh, uh, very expensive versus historical standards. So either earnings need to start rising again or valuation has to come down. Either one will do the trick. I mean, you know, not to kind of you know drill down, you know, who wants to be a millionaire style here, but are we talking about a 10% correction, a 20%, I mean, 30, 5%, just give me a ballpark here. Right. I, I don't think we're going to retest the October lows. Right. I think that there's been a lot of repricing evaluation already. And there is some support there in the sense that uh, the market is now agreeing with the Fed. Right. So there's not a lot of dislocations there. But in order to go up. Right. That's the main point. Significantly, the drivers of earnings need to be there and the reallocation of new leadership has to emerge. And we just haven't seen that. All right. Quick final word, Brian, as we look to turn the calendar mercifully to March and figure out, OK, was all the January data just an aberration or not? How, what are you going to be watching for in terms of, of yields? Let's take the 10 year breaking out to the upside or to the downside. And, and I guess I'll just up, add this one question because I'm getting it from a lot of people on the street. Should they be going to Treasury direct and gobbling up six month and one year five percent yields here? Yeah, lots of good questions in there. So listen, we started uh, December 31st. The tenure note was right about here, 3.9% or so. And that tells you for the year it's going to be in a range of probably low threes to high fours. So there's no reason to say we're done with selling off here. We can have tenure notes at the October lows, four and a quarter. We can go to 450. Hmm. I think that's totally in play. I think of the friend of the yield curve, different story, right? And when you're getting those 5% T-bills, Treasury Direct, money market funds, whatever you like, those are good yields. The Fed doesn't know if it's five or five and a quarter or five and a half. They're fairly certain it's not six or six and a half or seven. So in that front of the yield curve, I think there's value. I think you're supposed to buy it. And we should watch the back end for more signs of whether or not there's a real growth story here or whether or not January was an aberration. All right. Thank you both. Good stuff today. Kick things off right. Brian Weinstein and Andres Garcia Amaya. We'll turn now to shares of Netflix higher as investors digest those reported price cuts from last week. The shares are up off their highs about two and a half percent. Now the streaming giant is reducing costs in more than three dozen countries. Other players like Disney Plus and HBO Max have been raising their prices. But on last month's earnings call, Netflix co-CEO Greg Peters says the company still has an opportunity to add new subscribers where it doesn't have a large share, according to the Wall Street Journal. So could this cut in those smaller markets boost revenues? Let's ask Laura Martin, senior media analyst at Needham. Laura, and I guess the other big question is, are the price cuts coming here? Hi. Now, the price cuts aren't coming here, I don't think, but it does tell you that Netflix is having to resort to price to compete. So their long um, espoused theory that content is all they need to compete is wrong. There's other they're either other local players or U.S. streaming players that are out competing them offshore. So they're having to lower price because that's their last option in order to drive sub growth. Hmm. And what does that tell you? Is it usually we think of price cuts as a desperation move, but sometimes they can be a sign of strength. For instance, Tesla's price cuts could be seen as taking out competitors as the cost of capital rises. How would you interpret this move by Netflix? 
Well, maybe, but every streaming competitor here um, really has very deep pockets and deeper than Netflix in almost every case. Disney has sister subsidiaries from theme parks that are like record high um, margins that are funding Disney streaming losses. Similar with uh, Warner Brothers we just saw yesterday. You know, a lot of these bigger companies have streaming. Like Netflix can't put these guys out of business by lowering its price. These other companies are bigger than it. They can put Netflix out of business by lowering price, but this to me is a fool's errand in terms of a competitive strategy for Netflix specifically. So they need something like the parks or with Warner Brothers, we'll get to that in a second, like video games. I mean, what could be that kind of consistent cash flow generative asset for them? They would have to buy something because today they're single, they're singles, you know, they're building games, but games is a money loser too. So they're a single line business, which loses a lot of money. So, um, you know, like, like they're also competing, by the way, with Apple and Amazon. Like, like nobody, like you can't actually win on price competition against Apple and Amazon because their sisters, their core businesses are so big. Okay, so finally, I mean, and listen, I, I'm not a huge Netflix watcher, but I'm going to be watching the Mahomes, this, this football thing. I love it, okay? So how, if we look ahead to 2023 and we say, okay, is the stock going to generally be benefiting from price, retention, you know, new series that are driving engagement, and maybe even this price cut in, in other markets? I mean, or are we going to be telling ourselves a different story in a couple months' time? So there's a new film coming out, looks great, on the beginning of Nike and how they bet on this unnamed guy named Michael Jordan <laughs> and how they built the company on him. That's what Netflix is doing. Remember this huge documentary they had with uh, the princes, you know, the UK drama? Yep. Um, so aligned with the book. Here we're doing that again, like they had the Obamas on. So they're paying for celebrities. It's a smart idea what they're doing. They don't want to go in for NFL rights, so they're going to pay some of these celebrity talents to do documentaries. And that brings a lot of fandom from that NFL at a lower cost to Netflix. That's a smart idea because they have no sports and now they're in sports. So that's a smart idea in a low cost kind of way, but it's also celebrity based. And as you know, from watching you, these YouTube stars, you know, these are human beings and sometimes they make mistakes and it destroys your brand, meaning Netflix, if one of these guys does something bad. So it's a risky strategy to depend on celebrities no, to no, drive you, you just make a movie about that. You just go, great, you guys are just turning out content. No, I'm kidding, but you still, let me put a period on it, believe that this year's estimates and valuations are too high for Netflix. So let me turn to Warner Brothers Discovery. Everyone talking about this last week, Laura, are they the new Disney? Um, that's, that's a big leap, uh, but do you think David Zaslav can pull it off? So it's a good question. I mean, I think, look, I think when you buy an asset from AT&T, it is messed up. And we have a world-class chief financial officer here. Whatever he tells you he's going to do in cost-cutting, he'll do more because he bought it from AT&T. And they are not good with costs, in my opinion. So I would say I think the strategy as espoused is good. It is a Disney strategy, franchise films, everything integrated. We're going to bundle HBO with Discovery, but we're going to let them be separate also. Like, that's smart. Like, everything they're saying, which is like a Disney-esque commercial. And let's remember John Malone's on the board here. True. So we've got world-class businessmen in this company now, running this company. Let's not underestimate that. Over a three-year frame. This year, I think it's going to be sort of tumultuous as they build back that film. Um, and they ultimately have to execute. That's right. the issue. They have not been Marvel, and they need to be Marvel for that billion, you know, $5 billion film budget. And so as an investor, what do you think the potential here is for valuation? And again, how long do I have to wait? And I, I'm going to be waiting through what could be a recession, you know, a very high cost of capital, possibly some M&A. 
Yeah, I think it's too early. We have a hold here. I think it's too early. I think what they're saying is right. Let's see how they execute, right? Because remember, when you build a film, a film um, slate, you invest for three years. The first dollar of revenue is three years later, and he's building a film slate this year. That means your return on capital from a free cash flow point of view are falling. Still too early, but really like what he's saying. Let's see if they can execute that strategy. Yeah, and if so, it would be one of the greatest stories. Netflix should buy that story. If he pulls it off, that would be one of the greatest stories of all time. Laura, thanks so much for your time today. Thank Laura you. Martin with Needham. On deck, three big names reporting results. Norwegian up 40% this year, just about. Target, how will they stack up against Walmart? And from number one in the S&P last year to negative for 2023, we'll dig into Occidental. We've got the trade on all three names next. Plus, what's helping the market fight off nearly five percentage points of rate hikes in less than a year? Dave Zervos is here with his theory. If you know what it is, if you think you do, tweet me at Kelly CNBC. As we head to break, let's get a look at the markets where we see green across the board off the highs, but the Nasdaq still leading the way with a 1% gain, 392 on the 10-year. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's another busy week for earnings. 6% of the S&P and a Dow component report. And we've got the action, the story, and the trade on three of them. Let's start with Oxy, the top S&P performer last year, down 7% to start this year. And it's got that huge Berkshire stake. Pippa Stevens here with the story. And Jeff Kilberg has our trades today. He's KKM financial founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Pippa, welcome. What are you watching? Well, Oxy has underperformed this year, lagging both the XLE and the XOP, although it does feel like expectations have been somewhat reset ahead of the quarter, thanks to some disappointing outlooks from peers. But of course, the most important thing here to watch is the capital spending plan. Shareholders have been very clear with management teams that they want to see that discipline. And it was higher than forecasted CapEx that brought down shares of peers like EOG and Devon earlier this quarter. So where does Oxy come in on that? A lot of that spending increase is thanks to cost inflations, but that means that producers aren't getting more barrels for that higher spend. Also, the health of the balance sheet at the end of last year, given that Oxy has been so focused on paying down debt related to the Anadarko acquisition. And that, of course, leads into the shareholder returns program, which is also top of mind. Oxy does pay a lower dividend than some of its peers. Do they decide to raise that? Do they introduce a new buyback program? And a complicating factor here is that big stake from Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. You know, how does that factor into Oxy's capital returns program and how much of a headwind might that wind up being? In addition to that preferred stake, the company also Berkshire Hathaway, I should say, 
also is the largest shareholder of the common shares, owning about 21% Kelly of shares as standing wow. as of the end of last year. And I think, Jeff, they can up that to, is it almost half of the company? Um, if this one weren't such a saga of the past couple of years, maybe people would be quicker to you know, ride alongside Berkshire here. Well, I think it's a great point, but I want to be a buyer, Kelly. And yes, to Pippa's point, down about 7% year to date, but in the last one year, it's up over 50%. And think about, investors have been doing the hokey pokey inside of growth and value. They continue the hokey pokey. But what has been a theme that continues to connect with investors? It's energy. So if you look at a name like Occidental, yes, it's higher beta. Yes, it's one-tenth the size of an Exxon. But with a beta of like 1.77, nearly double the S&P 500, there is risk-reward here. In the Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, I'm pretty sure Warren's got a pretty good track record. So I love the fact. I actually think that's a fortifying reason to own. But if you look at the chart here, it makes a ton of sense. Support here at $55. Technically, it looks like it has the ability. Short-term price target, Kelly, 75 bucks. Wow. Wait, so is the hokey pokey a good thing? A hokey pokey is a good thing because a lot of people have been trying to figure out growth value, which is best in the grappling, but nonetheless, energy. And remember, Oxy was almost left for dead when it tried to acquire Anadarko, but sure. here it is, come back. It's the comeback kid. I don't know if you have the music ready queued up, but it's like <laughs> LL Cool J, don't call it a comeback. They've been here for years. <laughs> All right, Pippa, thank you. Jeff, stay right there as we move along and talk Target. Everyone's watching for this one. Kind of the opposite story here. They had a bad 2022 and then a 13% gain to start this year. Big question, is the consumer pulling back? Have they worked through that inventory glut? Can they snap their streak of three straight earnings misses? Jeff, you like it? I do like Target here, and it's fascinating. Hmm. The retailers have been really mixed, and in the wake of Walmart, this is tough. You know, we're coming into earnings season, but we have high expectations. They had a surprise last quarter uh, to the downside. So I think what you see is go back a year ago on a chart, May. It kind of had that, that fall from grace, and there's a back-and-fill opportunity. Yes, this is a big number I'm about to throw out there, but $210. And I think the consumer, the, the strength of the consumer will be revealed, and I think a lot of the, the, the tang, uh, tangible lines that have been seen from other retailers, that's been priced in here. So I think it's priced in. It's been a sideways trade. It seems very coiled. 210 is where it wants to back and fill. It's an old technical term that we like to use on the floor, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. That allows a lot of gaps to be filled back in from price and volume, Kelly. All right. If it goes the other way, what levels would you be watching? Well, I think you have to look right where it's trading right now. I think you can be aggressively selling puts, and I think the implied volatility is higher than usual going in this earnings expectation. So I think you have the opportunity to get paid a little bit as long as you want to own the retailer. A lot of folks don't want to own retailers. I think much of the inflation story has been priced into retailers. Therefore, this is the time to kind of wade into the water. All right. We'll leave it there for Target then, who shares, by the way, about Unch today. Don't miss an exclusive interview with Target CEO Brian Cornell tomorrow on Squawk Box, 7 a.m. Eastern. Eastern time. Sometimes I like to call that the CEO indicator. But anyway, uh, let's get to Norwegian Cruise Lines up 35% to start the year, but still carrying more than 10% short interest and expected to report a loss. Seema Modi, you've got the story. What is the deal with Norwegian? Well, Kelly, as you know, the, the story for uh, travel has been one of strength, right? A very positive view of the consumer that is willing to pay top dollar for a big trip or a big vacation. Royal Caribbean CEO Jason Liberty joining us just a couple weeks ago here on this show, The Exchange, where he said that pricing power will improve going into this year. And that's going to be the question for Norwegian, which is much more skewed towards the luxury customers. Just how much elasticity is there with cruise ticket prices, especially in Europe? How does it view new competition from the likes of Marriott? 
Marriott, which debuted its Ritz-Carlton yacht last week, which we were on. These are smaller vessels that can get into ports that larger ships can't. Uh, I've been speaking to a number of travel agents, and from what I'm hearing, customers are very receptive to this idea. And then, of course, for the cruise lines, Kelly, it's, it does come down to their balance sheet. Analysts have been cautioning that of the three major publicly listed cruise lines, Norwegian has the most work to do to bring down that debt. So that will wow. be a key topic tomorrow. M more so than Carnival, Seema? That's exactly right. Yeah, they have wow. about $2 billion in maturities, I believe, coming up in 2024. So with the rebound we're seeing in bookings, does that give them more of an opportunity to bring down that debt and improve the balance sheet for customers? Clearly, investors have been thinking that that will play out with the stock up over 30% this year. And maybe it's, Seema, thank you, a reminder, Jeff, that the timing of those debt maturities is as, um, as important as anything else. I mean, this is going to be a major reset for a lot of, for a lot of names. You're absolutely right. And I don't think this sink is going to ship. See what I did there, Kelly? But the, at the end of the day, if you remember, we were talking about Carnival in Q4 on your show, where I like the space, I like Carnival, and I like Norwegian, but it's a timing component. It's had a wildly impressive year to date, and you're never going to go broke taking profits. So I want to be a seller here, or more of a profit taker, if you will. You look at a very high beta stock here in Norwegian. It's $7 billion in market cap. When we talked about Exxon earlier, we talked about Chevron, that's $450 billion. So think about this is a very small company, has the ability, high risk, high reward. But I think we're going to be really focused and Seema brought up a great point. You have to be focused on that forward guidance. The business conditions, we want to understand their perspective. Is 2023 going to be as robust as it is? But right now, right here, you have to take a profit. All right. Real quickly, Jeff, there, I haven't heard so much chatter about VIX and options in you know a couple of months here. Are you, are you worried about the overall market positioning? Even on a an update like this? I'm not. As long as the VIX is under 30, I think a lot of emotions are going to continue to go back and forth. I think this is uh, really revealing a market that's quite coiled. And I mm -hmm. believe, as I'm cautiously optimistic, that the market is going to release that coil, that tension to the upside. So I think a lot of people who are underinvested are really focused on diving into the six-month treasuries, the one-year treasury. Right. I think they're going to get caught short here a little bit because of the economic strength, the consumer. It's still intact, Kelly. All right, Jeff Kilberg, thank you, sir. Seema, thank you as well. That does it for today's edition of Earnings Exchange. Still ahead, will the labor force of the future rely more on skills or on that traditional college education in the age of AI? We've got the founders of Khan Academy and Udacity. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at the Dow heat map here. Much easier when I'm this close to it. Boeing leading the way up 2% today. The whole uh, industrials is up about half a percent right now. Two to one advancers versus decliners. And on the flip side here, we've got Walmart down half a percent. And we've got Merck down three quarters of 1%. The exchange is back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Dow hanging on to 131-point gain. NASDAQ leading the way, up nearly 1%. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much, and good afternoon, everybody. The Labor Department opening a child labor investigation into Hearthside Food Solutions, one of the largest food contractors in the country. That is according to Reuters. The company was one of several cited in a blockbuster New York Times story this weekend about how some children who come into the country without an adult accompany accompanying them wind up working in violation of child labor laws to make money to support themselves and their families back in their home countries. 
After hearing for defendant Alex Murdaugh last week, the jury in his murder trial will be visiting the family property where his wife and son were killed. Over the prosecution's objections, uh, the judge in the case agreed to the defense's motion for the visit. And lower mortgage rates in January contributed to an 8.1% increase in signed contracts on existing homes. But rates moved back higher this past month, uh, and that is expected to slow sales down. Kelly, back to you. Indeed, Tyler. Thanks. I'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Still ahead, training programs aimed at disrupting higher ed are prove providing new paths to six-figure salaries in tech. Sharon Epperson brings us that story. Plus, we'll hear from one of the first and biggest disruptors in the education space, Khan Academy founder and CEO, Sal Khan, after this. Between shockingly high price tags and new technologies like AI, many are questioning whether college is still worth it. That's especially true for young people of color. But one school is working to create an alternative path for those students to get the kind of jobs usually just reserved for college grads. Senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson is here now with more, Sharon. Well, Kelly, you know, we visited a school in Brooklyn that's certainly not a traditional trade school. The Marcy Lab School is changing the way post-high school education is delivered, partnering with the business community to prepare black and brown young adults for six-figure tech jobs. Former teachers Ruben Albana and Maya Betacharji Marcantonio found many of their successful high school students struggled in college. What we learned was that college wasn't serving our students. The two founded Brooklyn's Marcy Lab School to create an alternative path for low-income students of color. The program focuses on giving students the skills they need to do the jobs they want, even without a college degree. Their education includes classes, internships, and job opportunities, with support from J.P. Morgan Chase, Tiger Global, Microsoft, and other companies. Spending years with our students has led them to see them as not only students who have a ton of potential, but can be true hiring pipelines for their organizations. Devontae Duncan had trouble getting the classes he needed for his engineering degree at a public university and didn't want to take on more debt. I started to realize that college wasn't going to be sustainable for me, and so I had to find an alternative option. In 2019, he entered the first class of the Marcy Lab School. Here, students start their eight-hour day with meditation. The mind wanders, gently bring it back. Journaling and setting goals. What does success look like? What does it feel like for you? Free for students, the program started with a class of nine, and now 67 are enrolled. They're learning engineering skills, coding, and networking. There are a lot of laptops, a lot of monitors for coding and things to do, but it seems like there are also a lot of spaces to just get to know one another, just talk. Oh, yes. Marcy um, is very big on community. Anika Nanton is a current student and is finishing the program with a paid internship. Now I'm like actually working this, you know, salary. I'm doing a career. I actually can grow like in terms exponentially. Now 24, Duncan is a software engineer at Squarespace, making $140,000 a year. He completed the Marcy program two years ago. Not only were they teaching me how to code, they were teaching me how to survive in corporate America. And that's not something that you get at college. Marcy grads earn an average salary of a little over $100,000, but say the community they've built is worth much more. An increasing number of companies have embraced the idea of skills-based hiring as the answer to obtaining the talent that they need. But tech jobs that require a four-year degree have actually 
increased. Last year, 57% of job postings for software developers and engineers required a bachelor's degree. That's up from 51% five years ago. And that's according to data research firm Burning Glass Institute. What an amazing story, first of all. Yeah. Um, that's, thank you for bringing that to us. One of the things I ponder, Sharon, um, as a liberal arts college grad, is there something to be said for, you know, look, if AI replaces some of these programming jobs because it can literally generate programming language, should people have a broader skill set? I don't know what that, that skill set is really or the uh, opportunity to kind of be more nimble in the workplace if they need to. Well, that's exactly what the Marcy Lab School says that their philosophy is as well, that you need to do more than just software engineering skills and coding skills, but leadership development training, academic requirements that are pretty rigorous, and those are key to the overall development of the student and then attach that to paid internships and developing relationships and mentorships throughout the year with the program so that the companies actually get to know the students that they're Smart. going to hire. No, I mean, look, that's, you might as well call it liberal. I mean, that's fully rounded out. So exactly. you mentioned in the piece that it was free at the time. Is that still true? And how long is that sustainable? It, it is free and it will continue to be free as long as they have the companies backing it that they do right now, like JP Morgan and Tiger Global. There are a number of companies that are looking into doing this, and they are supporting it in various ways, either by offering the paid internships or by offering financial support for the actual classes. So there are different levels of sponsorship and such. But they believe that this is actually a scalable proposition here, wow. that they could perhaps see thousands of students in New York City going through this program and maybe even create a small college atmosphere that brings in students from elsewhere. That's great. And the price tag, all the more important with those resources. Sharon, thank you so much. Absolutely. Sharon Epperson. By the way, don't miss CNBC. NBC's Equity and Opportunity Forum on April 4th to look at more innovative ideas to create a sounder economic future for all. You can register for the virtual event at cnbcevents.com or scan that QR code. My next guests say traditional schooling is not designed to showcase skills and that apprenticeships actually set people up to be more successful in the real world. Sounds familiar. Joining me now, Sebastian Thrun, chairman and co-founder of Udacity and Sal Khan, CEO of the Khan Academy. Welcome to you both. I'll just pick up on exactly what Sharon and I were discussing, Sebastian. Um, do you, you know, the, the, providing skills is one thing and helping people be sound, you know, communicators, rhetoricians, she said, without being able to say it. I mean, those, how do you provide those skills uh, for long-term success in the workplace? It's very much doable. The, uh, the skill set is shifting a lot with advent of artificial intelligence and so on. But um, with online training tools, uh, similar to what Sal Khan will talk about and has developed very successfully, and we at Udacity, we have reached uh, millions of people, millions of enrollees, and given them basic skills, not just on software engineering and data science, but also in leadership. Do you worry, Sebastian, that here comes ChatGPT and, and I, Kelly, with none of this knowledge, could say to it, hey, create me a website that can, you know, write a newsletter and, and answer reader queries, and it can do that without needing the, kind of the people in the back office that would have formerly required? I'm incredibly excited. Every time society manages to do something in a day that used to take a year, we are better off because we become more productive and we can help more people. Just imagine what it would take to build, say, Google from scratch today. It took 25 years to build it. Tomorrow you might be able to build it in a month. How amazing would it be for us in society if you could innovate that fast? And Sal, we've spoken about this already. It's good to have you back. So maybe piggyback on what Sebastian is saying. And do you think education or, or kind of training will continue to evolve? Or is it already at the point at which it can equip people in a very efficient way for successful careers? 
Well, I think it's got to evolve, and it, and it will evolve. And this uh, case study that you all just showed is a great example of that. And I love that it shows how employers have a lot more power than they might realize in deciding how all of these things evolve. Uh, traditional uh, higher education, obviously, it's going to work for many folks, uh, but it's very expensive, it's inaccessible. And uh, you could argue that there's often a mismatch between what is taught what is learned and then what's actually useful for for the job market and so i think it's it's things like this especially if they, they become more mainstream especially if they become more portable where you could take a degree from say this program and then go to graduate school or go to med school or whatever uh i, th I think this is the way we're going to go and we're also going to see a lot more blending of high school experiences and college experiences it's becoming okay. very mainstream uh, to get significant college credit while you're in in high school, usually for very low cost. You know, I've I've heard that from people whose kids are just starting, and they say, you know what? Technically, she could almost be a sophomore walking in. Sebastian, what is that blended model going to look like? Listen, the pandemic literally showed us that we can all learn high school online. Um, we can learn what you you already offer online. So it's at some point, it does feel like we have all these outdated terms for a, a fundamentally similar product that gives us access to an incredible breadth of programming. I mean, I think Sal is, is very correct. It has to evolve rapidly. Uh, ChatGPT, if you haven't played with it, and DALI and so on, can basically do every homework assignment for any high schooler at this point. So we have to ask the question, are we teaching the right stuff at high school going forward? Because maybe the skill set is wrong. And that evolution will really fuel the, the world of education and learning. And it's not just high school and college. It's in my books, it's lifelong learning. It's people of my age who still have to learn new skills to stay current. That is going to happen. I think in the future, people will speed home and maybe a half a day a week, a quarter of a day a week, train themselves something new, something interesting, so they stay on top of things. Sure. No, I listen, we love doing that as well. Sal, give me sort of a, a glimpse into business model evolution and maybe even investment ideas that might result from everything that you guys are saying. Well, I think the big thing, as Sebastian just mentioned, um, old homework is getting uh, very uh, dated very fast. Uh, but what I think is exciting is this, these introduce the idea for whole new modalities. Uh, it's not too far off where every student is going to have access to an artificial intelligence tutor. It's not far off where it's not going to write the essay for you, but it'll write the essay with you. You can get immediate feedback on what you write. That will make you a better writer. And to the question about you know, these large language models or AIs being able to code for you or write for you, we all know that you know the real talent is how you put the pieces together, how you actually solve real problems. I remember when I was coming out of college in the late 90s, everyone was, and with a CS degree, everyone was saying, oh, I don't know, those jobs are gonna get outsourced to India. Well, 20 <laughs> years later, some of them did, but the high-level jobs stayed here, and, and engineers are getting paid more than ever. And I think you're going to see that the people who can keep abstracting themselves and use the tools well, like Sebastian's describing, are going to be very marketable for a very long time to come. What would you add to that, Sebastian, especially for those thinking through uh, the investment implications? The other thing is really happening right now. It's, it's, it's going global. It's, it's really that we are democratizing access. Udacity has a very strong relationship with the Middle East. In Egypt, we just created over 70,000 people. And those all became, or many of them became freelancers. And they bring to the country more than $100 million of hard currency every year, just based on education that wasn't available in Egypt before. Yeah. It's really a, um, a move to give every person on the planet, every age, every ethnicity, every geography, a seat on the table. And that's happening right now at this moment. It's super exciting. All right, we'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you both for your time. Really appreciate it.
Sebastian Thrun, Salcon, two heavyweights. Uh, glimpse into the future here. We appreciate it. Still ahead, is it a sector shift? Is inflation to blame or is the relationship just not as linear as investors want it to be? Up next, we're asking, do rates actually matter to stocks? Mike Santoli will tell us after this break. Welcome back, everybody. Check out the chart behind me. It shows the Nasdaq composite versus the 10-year Treasury yield since August of 2020. So while the 10-year has soared by about sevenfold, the Nasdaq is virtually flat during this period. Uh, actually, it's up about 7%. What gives? How much do rates actually matter to stocks? Let's settle this once and for all and ask Michael Santoli, CNBC senior markets commentator. Mike, give us some perspective here. Well, Kelly, I would never say, of course, that interest rates don't matter to stocks, raising the cost of borrowing, lifting the hurdle rates for investors and for companies to, you know, uh, decide exactly what projects are worth doing creates more friction, I think, in the overall system. So, yes, higher yields matter for valuation, for uh, investor uh, kind of targets of their capital. I think what I object to and have for a while is this idea that there's some kind of a fixed, precise relationship between the level of yields and the level of stocks were particularly big growth stocks, because I think that was last year. It seemed like all you needed to know, right, was that yields were going up and the Nasdaq was going down. And on a tactical basis, on shorter term time frames, absolutely. People trade those correlations and they matter on some level. Uh, but what matters a lot more to me is the fact that massive downgrades in earnings expectations for those same big Nasdaq stocks since a year ago, uh, meta, sh meta earnings for this year. Estimates down 35%, NVIDIA down 33%, Google down 25%. That's what's going on is that we actually were extrapolating pandemic earnings and also discounting them back at a very low yield, granted. Uh, and, and that seemed to uh, kind of create this environment where we thought nothing could go wrong at the top. And now everything is working against those stocks on the way down. So we I put up the poll on Twitter. Two thirds of people said, yes, they matter. And again, I've inelegantly phrased the question uh, in your defense <laughs> about uh, one eighth said, no, they don't matter. And then a fifth of people say it depends on. So so it's so. a couple of the, the yes. responses were, you know, that it's uh, not really cause and effect or that it's kind of the direction and not the level that matters. Uh, one even put up the formula for the equity risk premium, which we always yeah. appreciate. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, I would well, say I, as an as a observer, it feels to me like the, 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 the direction and the speed of change are the most important things. But caveat that. Well, that's that. right. It, exactly. And look, when the Nasdaq was going up 40% from the middle of 2020 to the end of 2021, the 10 year yield went from half a percent to one and a half percent, right? So they can go up together. We know that, yes, still at a very low level. I, I think that what happens is near the, the top of the market, when people are very euphoric, they love these big platform companies that seem like they can grow when nobody else is growing, is they tell themselves that it's justified to pay 30 times earnings forward for the NASDAQ 100 because rates are low. So there's a sort of kind of crowd perception around it. I'm not going to deny that discounted cash flows matter. Right. What I'm going to say is the market in real time is not some highly engineered machine for arriving at the correct present value for long-lived <laughs> cash flows. Then what is it good for? Uh, so let me just ask, yeah. leave it with this then. Is it true that the much higher level of rates now versus a couple of years ago means you can't own high, you know, long duration stocks the same way or zero duration stocks, the same way that you would have those economics fundamentally change? And is that something that has kind of pulled the plug out of the fang trade? I think what it's done is it's 
suppress those valuations. And so there is a part of this that's already in, in, in train, right? So, again, NASDAQ 100 goes from 30 times earnings down toward 20 last year. Uh, maybe that's still too high. Maybe we have to worry about the. But to me, it's a little bit less. Once the valuations go down to a certain level, it's all about tell me what next year's earnings are going to be. Uh, not so much, you know, let's assume the earnings are going to be fixed. And what are we discounting it right. back? At what yield are we uh, are we discounting it back? at? Also, a high nominal growth economy that has helped to create a high inflation economy. It's helped to create the higher interest rates is one that's just not advantaging those types of companies. Right. Disinflationary technological. Change. Totally. It's not about that. Right. Right? It's the other it's cyclicals and value. Yeah, they're all they're kind of all effects. So they're telling you something about, I guess, the liquidity environment that you have to phrase the question better than me, Mike. And then we'll do the poll again, because now I'm not even <laughs> sure if I disagree on anything. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's, it's some of it is, some of its eye of the beholder and the market never shows its work as to why exactly it's arriving at a specific price. So we can keep arguing. About all right, you would know. And into break, we'll make sure we show the 10 year in the Nasdaq just to really <laughs> Thank you very much, <laughs> yeah. Mike Santoli. For more on how rates are about to create a huge problem for small businesses, by the way, it could mean a wave of layoffs ahead. Check out today's newsletter. You can sign up in one easy step at cnbc.com slash exchange dash newsletter, or just hit that QR code on your screen. Coming up next, Dave Zervo says rates will be higher for longer, and it's actually the Fed's own fault. More on that provocative take right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. We have saved the best for last today. Uh, Higher for longer. That's the latest refrain on the street. It's growing louder after that hotter than expected January PCE number. But could it be the Fed's own fault that rate hikes don't pack the same punch they used to? Let's bring in David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. David, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Always good to be here. This this is about a a week or so. uh, Remind me, I mean, how much feedback have you gotten to the idea that basically there's and, and, and I've had the same thought, by the way. Why is it that we've seen this unprecedented steepness and and these enormous rate hikes and yet nothing crazy's happened? Like the worst thing that's happened is, you know, FTX and that's not even related. So um, yeah. I, your theory is all of the bad assets that would have triggered things like Orange County's bankruptcy in 94, those kinds of things, those terrible MBS uh, paper, for instance, it's all in the Fed's balance sheet. Have they themselves absorbed all of the junk out of this market? Well, I wouldn't just say the Fed, Kelly. Um, the Fed's balance sheet at the peak was nine trillion. It's down to eight and a half or eight four now. The ECB's is eight point eight trillion. The Bank of Japan's is six plus trillion. Then you've got the UK. You've got Scandinavia. You've got tons of other G20 countries that have all engaged in the purchase of in general, long-dated fixed income assets. That was what QE was, right? Drive long rates down when you get to the zero bound. And and we sat there and decided somehow, I'm not exactly sure why, although I have my suspicions, that it was a good idea to leave these big balance sheets in place and first raise rates and then sort of just let them trickle off. But what's happening now is because the inflation fight has been so aggressive and rates have had to go up so quickly, there's massive losses on these balance sheets to the tune of multiple trillions of dollars when you add them up across right. uh, jurisdictions. And those are losses that would have otherwise been in Orange County or in uh, a, a asset manager or on a bank proprietary trading desk back in 1994 or in long-term capital management or somewhere else, and they're not. So there's all these gains, which is the consumer locked in a low rate, a corporate locked in a low rate, Anybody sitting there with a 2 or 3% mortgage feels pretty good about themselves. But there's no 
private sector loss that would normally be there because it's been absorbed by these, um, I want to call socialized loss structures inside of central banks. And I think the, the interesting thing is to think about, is this even a bad thing, right? Because the losses are real, but they're not, they get to just carry them forward. So they just get, the Fed gets to earn its way out of those losses and then eventually, so it, it doesn't really matter. I guess we can't even say that the taxpayer has to bear them right now. I guess they have to bear them in some way distributed throughout the future. But if you were a central banker, Dave, would you be sitting back going, wow, job well done? Or would you be saying, no, we should have shrank the balance sheet first, then done rate hikes, and then maybe we wouldn't have even had to as do, have done as many, but maybe there would have been a lot worse fallout. So I think it's a really tough question, Kelly. Um, I think there's a lot, some goods and some bads, and you're right to kind of focus a little bit on the good, that we, we've got a more financially stable structure. But then you question, you know, what, what happens uh, to sort of the Fed's credibility or the Fed's political credo when it's going up in front of Congress and uh, having these large losses? And now it's actually getting net interest margin losses. These are permanent losses. I think we're up to about 40 or 50 billion now in losses because they're paying out more on reserves to banks than they are receiving on coupon income from the portfolio. So politically, that's not a great place for the Fed to be. Uh, it has made a lot of money over the last decade plus, over a trillion dollars. But these mark-to-market losses, which you're absolutely right, they don't have to take, seem like they're a bit larger than that now. And I just think that's got a bit of a sting to it. And, and, and it, it sort of, to me, would argue for asset sales earlier, something that I've argued a lot for in the past or said I think it certainly made a lot of sense to me. But, um, you know, we're past that bridge. It's over. It's done. We are where we are. And I will say one thing, Kelly, without getting too um, deep in the weeds, there are some central banks like the Bank of England that cannot take a loss. So actually the taxpayer has to fund the negative capital positions at the Bank of England. So in other, and, and I'm not sure about this, but I think Sweden also has some rules. So right. there are other countries that do it differently than us. And that could be quite an interesting um, drag on things. But for now, this is a major tailwind for the U.S. And I think helps explain a little bit why yeah. the massive losses in fixed income haven't really reverberated through financial markets or the economy as much as you might have thought. I will say, so since I, I wrote up your piece, people have said to me, well, you should check uh, some of the banks and make sure that, you know, this, these aren't just hiding. So I'll just put that out there. But before you go, Dave, in the last kind of couple seconds we have, what do you think is going to happen at the next meeting? Then based on what you're saying, do they have to keep jacking rates up a lot further than we anticipate? So I think they could bring the balance sheet into it if they wanted to stop and, and figure out ways to get this, this sort of balance sheet lower faster. But they've already kind of, that, that horses left the barn, so they're going to take the losses. I don't know that it's really that beneficial. But I think what we're saying, Kelly, is that this idea that there's rate cuts coming in 2024 or late 2023, probably a really silly idea. Maybe we have to go up a little bit higher, another 25 to 50 bips. Not, I think, 100 or 150 bips. But the whole distribution to me has shifted when you start to think about this difference in the loss structure. And it was, for me, a pretty big revelation because I was sort of done with rate hikes really toward the end of the year and feeling right. pretty confident that we were we were just going to sit for a while. Now I think we might have to fine tune it a little more aggressively to the upside. And if anything, there's a fatter tail to even much higher rates. I, I certainly never subscribed to the cut camp and thought that was a really silly idea. So I'm, I'm glad I got that. But I definitely have to ratchet up my thinking on where we could end up and how long we could end up there well, uh, on the side. Dave, couldn't think of a better way to end it today. Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us.
Always fun, Kelly. David Zero. Zero, Zero, What is wrong with me? Zervos, chief market strategist at Jefferies. You know why? We're in a hurry. That does it for the exchange. Power Lunch is back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.